Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about putting up or shutting up. That turn of phrase is a specific reference to Dan Carlin's Common Sense podcast, which on uh, June 12th, just a couple of days before the time I'm making this recording, put up a podcast for show 229 called Put Up or Shut Up. is about Dan having uh, really become fed up with complaining, but like everybody else, he doesn't know what to do to foster genuine reform. In, in essence, Carlin says on the show that he has given up on the idea that as in a 12-step program, where step one is acknowledging you have a problem, that that won't work now in the political issues that we're facing today. That in some ways, the mission statement of his show, Common Sense, depends entirely upon the idea that if we shine the right kind of light in the right way on the things that are wrong with government, things that aren't going well in our society, the corruption that's there, that that alone might just make a difference. That awareness is the first step towards solving our problems. And essentially, he's conceded that that may not be the case. Here's a blog post that Carlin put up just today on his website, www.dancarlin.com, an entry called A Concentration of Forces. I'll only read some, and I won't even start at the beginning. I have been discussing the problems facing the USA and the world for many years now. News analysis, quote-unquote, was always the term used to describe it. Commentator was another oft-used description. Many of the people who have been tweeting about this also fall into those categories. Now, one either does that sort of job to make a living, or to foster positive change as they see it, or some combination of the two. If the goal is to foster positive change, then I imagine we have all hit the same wall. We can analyze and define the current situation, call it A, where, and where we need to go, C, but the mechanism to get us from here to there is the missing ingredient in all of our equations. I can't seem to come up with an adequate idea for B that will actually succeed. How do we get from A to C? The action verb is missing. The problem, of course, is corruption in our political system. Now, as we all know, Every system of government that has ever existed has some level of what we might be calling corruption inherent in it. Sweden has it. So does Nigeria. But in Sweden, the problem is so small that the system deals with it and it is almost unnoticeable. In Nigeria, no offense, Nigeria, it is so endemic that it dominates everything. Every system can absorb a certain amount and function fine. But there's a tipping point when things actually get to a place where you go from having a working political system with some corruption in it to a corrupt political system. The United States is past that tipping point. The problem in such a representative system as the USA's, though, is that we have a government that translates the popular will via intermediaries. In order to reform the corruption, the votes of the very people who benefit from the corruption are required to fix it. 
I've used the analogy that in order to foster change in this area, we need the foxes to redesign the chicken coop to make it fox-proof. The dilemma here is obvious. Dan Carlin goes on to say that there are things that we've always done in our history to address these issues. Uh, we've you know, stormed the voting booth, uh, generated a grassroots effort to register this protest at the polls. We've had a strong enough group, even if it's a small group of legislators willing to pass the right laws and legal reforms to change things, or people have gone to the streets to protest. Voting, legislation, and protests, quoting Carlin again. These are the traditional methods historically used to fill the action verb void. Those were the B in our A to C transition. When those fail, what should be tried? I recently interviewed three people running for president under the independent or third party label, Carlin says, former governors Buddy Romer and Gary Johnson and former mayor Rocky Anderson. Every one of them agreed with me about the analysis of the situation. All agreed the corruption is the Gordian knot in our system that taints any sort of legislative action. No bill can make it through our system to become law without the corruption changing it, or emasculating or loopholing it if it was intended to reform or create real oversight. Yet none of these people had any real answer for B other than, trust me, look at my record, I will fight for this. How? Smart men, but no answers. I'll stop quoting and start paraphrasing. It was at this point that Carlin said that he was getting tired of the idea that he was becoming a hypocrite, coming on a show on, you know, every 10 days, every 14 days to complain about the corruption, but not actually be able to fill in the blanks on what we ought to do about it. So he put out a call for action. There are smart people in our society. There are smart people who listen to Dan Carlin. And I think he was saying it's about time we found a way to bring some of these smart people together and come up with a solution. That's Carlin's perspective. I'll jump in here because I want to take seriously his claim about putting up or shutting up. And I want to do so for a couple of reasons. First, I don't think I'm done yet with inappropriate conversations, but I'm afraid Dan Carlin might be about to become done with common sense. From the very first inappropriate conversation show, I think I made it clear there are three podcasts out there I try never to miss. One is, well, almost anything on Simply Syndicated's network. We'll get to them in a minute. Another is Take Him With You, the spiritual but not religious podcast by Rick Moyer. And the third is Dan Carlin. Now, I have named key representatives from all three of those sets of programs as different drummers in the past. Dan Carlin going back about a year and a half now in a very early January release, 2011. But the thing that I think I don't want to say, I don't want to have any responsibility on my head for not taking seriously Dan's frustration and seeing one of the best shows out there simply disappear. I won't mind seeing it change dramatically. I'm assuming that in the course of 229 shows, it's seen a few changes along the way. But I don't want his call to action to be met with a roaring silence. But the other thing is, I share that perspective. Not only do I not think we're done discussing the th things, not, not only do I not think we've, I don't think we've taken our best shot yet. I think we've not taken any shot at all. And in fact, we're in grave danger of being a little bit closer to a civil war than a civil discourse when we stop discussing things with each other. That's where I want to focus the rest of this show. I'm going to put up 
not by presuming that I have any political solution because I'm not a political animal. I think if you look at inappropriate conversations historically, which maybe I'll do if I you know, get all the way to episode 100 and don't have something more compelling on my mind that week, take a look back, take a retrospective view. But if you did take that retrospective view before I did, I think what you're going to find is that in the realm of politics, sex, religion, rock and roll, popular culture, all those sorts of things, politics is not where my primary focus really is. I'm sure I've spent more time on the religion front. I may have even spent more time on the nostalgia front. It's not that I don't have political opinions. I just don't see myself as the kind of political leader or even the politically oriented columnist that Carlin has cited in this podcast as the kind of people he thinks should be weighing in, should be speaking their mind, should be contributing to a better way forward. Having said that, I think I do have some ideas about a better way forward, and they involve A, dialogue, and B, criticizing or perhaps even stopping the noise. I don't want to say silencing. It sounds violent, but you know, no longer listening to those people who don't engage properly in dialogue. Dialogue is a very simple thing, and I may hit this again next week. We'll see. Collaboration requires mutual respect, and that mutual respect is completely independent of roles. Parents can be respectful of children in a way that may be different than children being respectful of parents, but there's still a mutual respect involved in that relationship. And of course, it morphs and changes over time as children and parents both grow older. But mutual respect isn't something that kids give to parents and that parents have no, no reason to be giving back to kids. There is a kind of respect that's necessary. And I think that even if two people disagree about every conceivable issue, if they literally can find no common ground whatsoever, that doesn't mean that their conversation shouldn't happen. And it also doesn't mean that that conversation, if it does happen, should be in any way disrespectful. And that's kind of where I want to get to. So I want to use a quick example of kind of where I think, you know, some of the dangers lie and maybe use a uh, flirt with a logical fallacy of my own. I'm going to get awfully close to a reduction to absurdity here. So you've been warned. And then I want to talk through maybe one or two examples of situations where this dialogue can be better. I mean, how do you conduct dialogue with somebody who you find to be completely unreasonable? And I think the first thing you've got to do is try to understand their point of view. Endeavor to see them as something other than a dangerous person or a foolish person. If you go into a conversation with anyone with a unmovable assumption that that person's an idiot, well, you're never going to get anywhere. And this may be a good place for me to jump into, you know, a quick quote from a recent show on simplysyndicated.com called Remastered. I'll play the clip and then I'll talk about it. Greg's a great guy. And at the risk of doing the no true Scotsman fallacy, I'd say that Greg is no true Christian in that uh, if he were in an evangelical church talking about what he believes, they would just stare at him like he was an idiot. But he comes at it from a very educated perspective, and I can respect a lot of things that Greg says. But at the same time, that's not what Christians believe here. And it's, it's very disheartening to look at the two and hold them up next to each other. And I don't know where I was going with this line of thought, but. <laughs> <laughs> that is episode 10 of the show Remastered, available on www.simplysyndicated.com. It was released on May 7th of this year. So the examples that I'm going to try to cite today are going to be 
recent examples. Now, by way of quick introduction, that show and me have a lot in common. We get along, me and that podcast, because Remastered is truly all about nostalgia. It's, you know, a couple of people a little bit younger than me looking back on the 80s and 90s as being part of their childhood, whereas I look back on the 70s and 80s or 60s, 70s and 80s as part of my childhood. So I come from a different perspective, but I certainly appreciate the nostalgia. Sometimes they're speaking nostalgically about things I never got to see, because if I wasn't a kid at the same time, a lot of children's programs totally missed me. But in this case, they were discussing the politics of the 80s, and I was, of course, fully aware of the politics of the 80s. And along the way, they hit the topic of the influence of evangelical Christianity on the American political system. Now, I firmly believe that the brand of Christianity that is being expressed today most loudly and proudly by people who identify themselves as conservative has so little to do with the New Testament, has so little to do with Jesus Christ in particular, that there is probably something wrong with calling it Christianity. And when Jason refers to the no true Scotsman logical fallacy, well, that's exactly it. He's referring to me as somebody that he has a hard time viewing as a Christian at all. And I would tell him that I don't view most of these politically active Christians as true Christians at all. And each one of us are saying, we've got this idea of what this thing really is. And we can easily point a finger to the other guy and say, you're not that. You don't qualify. And the fallacy, of course, I've mentioned in previous shows, is the idea that anytime a Christian does something hateful, he's not a Christian. Well, I'm sorry. If you identify yourself as a Southern Baptist, if you're a pastor of a church, if you're ordained through some seminary, and on a Sunday morning inside a worship service, you stand up, not just before your congregation, but before God himself, and start talking about your conviction that what we should do as a country, your conviction that what God wants you to do, hearkening back to the uh, Dead Kennedy song, I Kill Children, and, and the opening line, God told me to skin you alive. If what you think as a pastor of a Christian church is that we should round up everybody who's not heterosexual and put them in a concentration camp or put them to death, well, it's easy for me to look and say, well, clearly that's not a Christian, right? Or at the very least, that person's not answering the what would Jesus do question even remotely accurately, But it's a logical fallacy because it can be played from both sides. It's a dead end. It's a mistake because it doesn't lead to conversation. Now, I want to hit a couple of things with regard to the comments on the remastered show. First, I want to provide an answer to the thought that Jason raised, the question sort of in the air about, well, what would happen if Greg went to an evangelical Christian church? How would that play out? And secondly, I want to talk a little bit about some of the conversations that I've had in the past with, you know, Jason on Facebook and others, because he introduced the topic saying, hey, I've had some conversations on Facebook with, you know, somebody that I I have a lot of respect for and enough respect for that I'm having a hard time dealing with him as a Christian, because to me, Christian evil, Christian means hateful, bigoted, anti-intellectual. And what do you do when you encounter a Christian who's not those things? Do you commit the logical fallacy of saying, well, they're probably not really a Christian. Or do you challenge them when they say that, no, the people, these politically active people, these power-crazy folks who have decided that some amalgamation of what Old Testament law says and a, a sort of a twisted view of what Jesus did on the cross not mattering that much, you know, that to me, that's a perversion of Christianity. But, you know, Jason's not wrong. 
if the perverts are leading Christianity, then at what point do you, you – know, when they control the power structure, how do you, how do you make that distinction? Now, in this case, I don't mean perverts in the same sense that that pastor in North Carolina would mean when he uses the word. I'm talking about somebody who takes something and intentionally, for his own benefit, veers it off its normal course. Jesus told us what he thought, and if you get that wrong, if you get that wrong on purpose, if you get that wrong on purpose because of hate or spite or uh, a grab for political power— what you've done is definitely a perversion. It's a perversion in the worst sort of way. But the fact of the matter is, I do go to church almost every single Sunday. It's a rare occasion, sickness or uh, out-of-town work commitments or something like that that makes me miss. And although the church I go to is mainline Protestant, is how the, the Gallup poll people would qualify. That's what the census would say. It is still a mainline Christian a mainline Protestant church that has an evangelical bent to it. Most of the people that I worship with, if you ask them the question, are you an evangelical Christian, yes or no, most of them would say yes. There are some who would say no. There are some who, me, who like me, who would say, uh, yeah, I don't like your use of terminology. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Make of that what you will. But I think that, again, by and large, the at least the plurality, if not the majority of the people that I worship with every Sunday would identify themselves as evangelical. Plus, I don't always attend my church. I engage in parachurch activities, not as often as I used to, but often, where I'm rubbing elbows with people who are part of churches that are non-denominational in a good way and churches that are non-denominational in a way that I feel is borderline cultic and the same kind of Southern Baptist churches that with the same mentality as these pastors who've made such headlines lately with their call to you know, round up all the gays and put them into slums and concentration camps or put them to death, that sort of mentality. And they don't look at me like I'm an idiot. That is the one thing they don't do. There are two things they're much more likely to do besides ignore me, you know, and maybe those who ignore me are ignoring me because they think I'm an idiot. I don't think so. I think they ignore me because they're anti-intellectual and they don't like hearing an intellectual argument. They, they assume the opposite, that I'm some sort of ivory tower person who's who's got these ideas that don't matter because they're they're not real in a way that my gut level revulsion against all homosexuals is real so to speak no the reactions i get run two courses most of the time i get agreement and it's the weirdest thing in some ways it's the most disconcerting thing because i'm saying things that i believe maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm right but i believe that they disagree with I am challenging their core point of view, but I'm challenging it with Scripture. I'm challenging it with what Jesus said. I'm challenging it with what Jesus did on the cross. And they're not in much position to disagree with that. So more often than not, they agree with me, but carry on with their attitudes anyway. Meaning that to the degree that Jason's correctly identified that these people have a bigoted streak in them, they agree with me that bigotry is wrong, and then they turn around and carry on being bigoted. That's a very real reaction. The other reaction I get is anger. But to be honest with you, I get an angry rejection of everything I'm saying. I get told that I'm evil far less often inside the church, far less often when I'm quoting Jesus in a place where I've come to worship Jesus. I get that much more often in political circles. It is not at all unusual for me to find myself in a situation on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere like that where quoting Republicans to Republicans gets me an angry denunciation as somebody who's not a true Republican. 
And by that, I mean, I'm not just talking about quoting guys like Dwight D. Eisenhower and Barry Goldwater. I'm talking about quoting people like George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan can get you metaphorically thrown out of the conservative camp because these icons of Republican conservatism, people who are held to such lofty esteem that if you criticize them, which I from time to time do, you're a bad person. But if you quote them on issues related to separation of church and state and uh, our obligation to take care of the needy, in this particular political climate we're in, you're, you're very likely to be told you're not a true Republican. You're no true Republican. You're no true Christian. You're no true Scotsman. And it's in this sense that Jason and I have had no trouble either agreeing or agreeing to disagree. And I think the number one reason that that agreeing to disagree is so important is that the dialogue is more important. It's not about debate. It's not about winning. It's about, well, ultimately, it's about finding acceptable compromises, taking steps along the way. But let me offer a cautionary tale to anyone who has listened to enough inappropriate conversations that they feel like, I, I, this guy must be a liberal. I don't consider myself a liberal. Issue by issue, I think you could go check boxes and find me veering ditch to ditch. But you know what? When the road itself is twisted, making a lot of turns and veering a lot left and right is probably a smart thing to do. I don't presume to be a, a lukewarm centrist who wants to you know stay on you know the middle of the road at all times i don't mind being on the right being on the left being on the shoulder i don't even mind having a wheel off the edge and having to do a little off-road recovery every now and then if it's right so the logical extreme on the the bigoted anti-homosexual stance of certain evangelical christians particularly the southern baptist christians that we've heard from here recently in the media well, their logical extreme, I think, is in some ways wiser than Judge Antonin Scalia. I made this argument before. I believe the previous inappropriate conversations where I made this point and kind of walked through my attitude about the issue that was raised politically in Colorado a few years ago came out about a year ago. I'm going from memory here, but I think it was called The Content of Their Character, Episode 43, and if I'm not mistaken, it would have been like one week after episode 42 featured Dan Carlin as the different drummer. In there, I talked a little bit about Scalia and anyone else who shared his dissenting view on that Colorado case, where the Supreme Court basically stepped in and overturned what I would call a pro-discrimination law that had passed by popular vote in the state of Colorado, was that if Scalia's vision of the state of Colorado was to come to full fruition— Eventually, he would have to round up all of the homosexuals, bisexuals, and transgendered people and put them in a concentration camp or, you know, set aside some, you know, far off community for them to live in out of sight and out of mind. I won't go over the argument again. It's there in episode 43. But Scalia doesn't know this. He may not be wise enough to understand that his position can and should be taken to a logical extreme. And if you magnify his point of view and begin asking questions like, and then what? And then what? And then what? He ends up having to exterminate the people he disagrees with. Because if you're not allowed to feed them, if you're not allowed to clothe them, if you're not allowed to give them a hotel to stay in, if you're not allowed to employ them, or to twist that back to what the law really said, you don't have to employ them. You don't have to sell them groceries. You don't have to provide them emergency medical care. 
It's only one jump further to round them all up and put them to death. It's a big jump, mind you. I'm making a, a leap of, of a logical fallacy proportion here. But just because I'm making a reduction to absurdity doesn't mean that the conclusion is wrong. Here's the problem. If you listen to the remastered show on politics, I think what you're going to find is the same thing I find whenever I've had conversations with people who share this point of view on the Christian side of the equation. If we're not going to engage, if we're not going to get to the bottom of what Scripture really means, if we're not going to try to answer the no true Christian, no true Scotsman fallacy, what do you ultimately do? I mean, it's very, it's dead wrong and obviously wrong in my mind for anybody to talk about taking a group of people with whom we have a fundamental disagreement and rounding them up and putting them in a camp and excluding them from society. But in some ways, there's a liberal answer or an atheist point of view, a radical atheist view, I believe is how I've heard it described on other shows, that taken to its logical extreme has to do the same thing. We're not going to compromise with these Christians. We're not going to discuss things with them. We're not going to try to find any common ground. We're going to declare them to be unrepentant, unredeemable bigots whose homophobia is a blight on our society. And the only thing that can ultimately be done about them is to declare them to be schizophrenic or put them in a mental institution or round them up and put them in some sort of concentration camp so that they won't, their hatred toward others won't infect children. That it might be one thing. We might be able to hold our nose and tolerate a policy of religious indoctrination if the religious indoctrination going on in certain schools was about teaching people to love one another. But if that religious indoctrination is teaching people to hate, we probably should protect society against it. And the ultimate protection, of course, is some sort of final solution. So here I am, simultaneously pointing a finger at both sides of this issue and saying, Any of us who are making an argument that can so easily be reduced to a holocaust are making a bad argument. We've taken a wrong turn. I've said before, speaking about my relationship with God, speaking about the Holy Spirit, that there is a fundamental difference between schizophrenia and the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those are not the same thing. One of my favorite films of all time is Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly, and it depicts a woman who has had conversations with God, who is genuinely schizophrenic. That is not what a Christian looks like. Forget the distinction between true Christians and non-true Christians. That's not what any Christian looks like. That's what a mental patient looks like. And you can't call every Christian in the world schizophrenic without having to come up with a different word for the Karen character in Through a Glass Darkly. Because you know what? She truly is schizophrenic. And the second we, again, play with our language in such a way that we have to invent a new word to mean something that it already means because we've chosen to abuse the language by taking an existing word and twisting it into meaning something else, something else for an ad hominem purpose, something else we're going to use to attack others with. And we've made a fundamental mistake. We have done to the English language as presumably intellectual people the exact same mistake the exact same sin, if you will, that a lot of these politically active Christians have made with Scripture. I mean, to me, the problem is taking a piece of written word, twisting its meaning, bending it to your will for a political purpose, and perverting its original meaning to such an extent 
that you no longer can use the same terminology the way you used to before because you become too broad. You've painted with too big of a brush. You've, you've gone in a stereotypical direction. Well, again, I'm pointing my fingers at both sides of the political spectrum here and saying both of you are making a mistake. This group of politically active Christians needs to be challenged every time they quote scripture out of context. They need to be asked the big question about whether they even understand the Bible. There was an argument online that I tapped into just a little bit, only just a little bit, because it is genuinely soul-crushing to read this kind of hatred. But Carrie Underwood was in an interview and said sometime in the last few days that she was in favor of marriage equality for gays and lesbians and bisexuals, and that she didn't feel that it was appropriate for anybody to be denied the joy of marriage that she's experiencing herself. This is not the episode where I'm going to go into my point of view about the question of marriage as a term. Um, I've got a blog post out there. If you go to Inappropriate Conversations, uh, uh, the Podbean site, and, and seek through the articles section, you'll find my point of view there written out in some detail. It doesn't seem like it makes sense at this point to repeat all that in a podcast. I'll simply say that my point of view is more complex than Carrie Underwood's. But it is closer to agreeing with her than it is to most people on the other side of the political spectrum. Well, the argument led in the direction of one man quoting verses in Leviticus over and over again, the same verses over and over again. Like every time somebody would make an argument, he'd respond with the same verse. It was almost childish and immature, as a matter of fact. It didn't make any sense. It was exactly the kind of anti-intellectualism that Jason referred to with, with Rich on the, on the remastered show. Again, not wrong about the anti-intellectual point of view there. Captured it pretty well. But somebody along the way said, hey, you know what? I don't understand why another person who was berating Carrie Underwood and pretty much vowing never to listen to her again was a female person who posted comments on the website. Now, to my point of view, posting comments on the website is almost strike one against you. I don't see most of those as being intellectual discourse. There's a lot of baiting. There's a lot of hating. I don't have any patience for it. It's not something I typically would spend any time doing. But somebody responded to her, somebody who's not me, and said that she shouldn't be speaking on this issue because she's clearly a Christian who has a wooden literal interpretation of the Bible, and therefore she should know better than as a woman to raise her voice and to speak to an issue in public. Well, she retorted back that, you know, that that's just ridiculous and nonsensical. That's not in the Bible at all. You don't know what you're talking about. And, of course, the person replied by saying, well, I don't know where it is in the Bible, but I know it's in the Bible. And she said, well, that's probably just a bunch of Old Testament stuff that doesn't apply anymore. To which somebody finally chimed in and said, no, it's a New Testament passage. It's Paul speaking to a particular woman in the church at Corinth in the first letter of Corinthians. So not just a passage from the Old Testament that doesn't apply anymore, but a passage from the New Testament itself. And furthermore, how somebody who's quoting Leviticus, how does that person have any sort of claim to make that there's passages in the Old Testament that do and don't matter? It's fairly nonsensical. My point of view here is not something I'm going to take the time to share on this show. I may actually have to hit it because the political dialogue as we get closer and closer to the 2012 election may force me to actually make a, uh, a statement about what, Christianity's, what Christianity truly says. What does the Bible really say? I'm not going to take the time to do that here. I'm more than halfway in. But on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, there is a tab on the header called Christianity, and it's 
a tab that will take you to a fairly lengthy and detailed article called Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And in there, I give what I believe is an actual, genuine, non-heretical, non-politically tainted, scripturally valid perspective on what Jesus did on the cross and what it meant. And again, people on the liberal side of the political spectrum, particularly those who are atheist or identify as atheist or agnostic, who do the same thing that the anti-intellectuals on the other side do. You know, you start actually explaining what the Bible says and what it is, and quoting scripture right and left, and backing it up with appropriate references to the Old Testament, and they begin to get confused, stick their fingers in their ears, la, 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 can't understand you, don't want to hear it, just a bunch of theological mumbo-jumbo. Well, you know what? Dan Carlin's right. It's about time that people who pride themselves on being intelligent got together and had an intelligent conversation, granting going in that no one's going to win a debate and no one's going to lose a debate because we're going to go in with the notion that the most important thing we can come away with at the end of that conversation is a unified, better-than-we-were-before perspective for the future of the country. The United States of America is closer to civil war than we may have been in more than 150 years because we've stopped talking to each other. Why are we talking about each other as enemies to begin with? We are first and foremost a group of Americans. And we have several problems that I would describe as primarily American problems. And I don't disagree for one second with Dan Carlin, double negative notwithstanding in that sentence, when he says the biggest problem is corruption. We're not going to get anything done in our political system when our political system has been bought and sold by a select powerful few. And we're not going to get done anything done in our political system when people on both sides of the political spectrum are trying to use us as pawns, trying to make everyone who's not a Christian believe that Christians are their enemy, or trying to make people who have perhaps a stunted, you know, um, incomplete understanding of what you know, the Bible actually says, believe that anyone who is different from them in any way whatsoever is the devil coming to steal their country away from them. We've got to turn to both of those people on those kinds of extremes and ask if there's anybody, anybody capable of a civil intelligent discord in the group. And if they're not, then we need to ignore them. Because I believe that the overwhelming majority of people in this country would still be talking to each other if we allowed ourselves to talk to each other. Dan Carlin. Common sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm a bit worked up, as you can tell. Not about my friends Jason and Rich, but I'm a little bit worked up about the issue as a whole. Because I don't feel like I should be asked to compartmentalize myself. I shouldn't have to be Greg, who has friends who are homosexual, in one you know, part of my life, and then try to be a different person in church on Sunday. I shouldn't have to be that same guy in the middle of the next week, uh, being asked to leave my Christianity at the door when I come over to the party to watch the ball game at my friend's house. 
We shouldn't be asking anybody to be compartmentalized, but we should ask people to treat each other with dignity and with respect. And we should ask each other the next question. What is the next question? Well, there's a better way to debate. And the better way to debate does include getting to the real heart of the matter. We can assume that every time you know, a governor in a Midwestern state like Kansas passes, signs into law and his legislature passes a law that tries to make sure that no you know, Muslims are going to come to our state and take it over and put in Sharia law. We can act like those people are just ignorant, but it's a big mistake because once we do, we're saying they're unworthy of having a dialogue with. That is every bit as offensive as somebody who says that a homosexual person is unworthy of their friendship. Because, you know, something kind of magical happens when Christians do what Jesus said. Go into the world and make disciples. Now, you can make disciples in a couple of different ways. You can make disciples by rounding up all the natives and cutting off their knuckles until they say the creed, until they say the magic words, until they recite through their painful tears the sinner's prayer. That's not what Jesus had in mind. What Jesus had in mind is something he demonstrated over and over and over again. Engage. Have dialogue. Tell your story. Listen to their story. Care about people. And you know what? If I'm going to be called a liberal Christian, because I have a mature, healthy, full-grown understanding of what Jesus said to do, and because I listen to the Holy Spirit within me, and because I engage with others and am perfectly capable of making and forming friendships— with people who don't believe in God, with people who have a different sexual orientation, with people who've had an abortion, with people who, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean I'm a backslider, and it doesn't make me the enemy. It means I'm engaging. And if you engage with people, it's a little harder to recommend that they be rounded up and shot just because they're different. Because now you're not talking about some faceless stranger. You're talking about your friends. You're talking about your family. And that's a different situation. So when I mentioned Kansas as a state earlier, was I speaking hypothetically? (laughs) I wish I was. Here's a USA Today article, Dateline Topeka, Kansas. The online site refers to it as being updated on May 26th, 2012. Kansas Governor Sam Brownback signed a law aimed at keeping the state's courts and government agencies from basing decisions on Islamic or other foreign legal codes. And a National Muslim Group's spokesman said Friday that a court challenge is likely. The law, taking effect July 1st, doesn't specifically mention Sharia law, which broadly refers to codes within the Islamic legal system. Instead, it says that courts, administrative agencies, and state tribunals can't base rulings on any foreign law or legal system that would not grant the parties the same rights guaranteed by the state and U.S. constitutions. A little further down in the story... Oklahoma voters approved a ballot initiative in 2010 that specifically mentioned Sharia law, but a federal judge in federal appeals courts blocked it. So that's the USA Today story. The difference is by not making a specific mention to Sharia law, those in Kansas believe they've bypassed the court challenge. Now, the reason that there's likely to be a court challenge anyway is not because this law has any tangible impact upon the way jurisprudence is done in the state of Kansas or anywhere in the country. It's not like they're getting a court challenge from a group of people who are desperately eager to impose Sharia law. What they're getting a court challenge for is Muslim activist groups who believe that this law, A, serves no tangible purpose, and B, is either intentionally or unintentionally going to 
inflame discrimination, if not violence, against people who follow Islam. Where do I stand on this issue? Where, where I stand on this issue is that, yeah, I could take the cop out and say, it doesn't really matter. Kansas wasn't going to be under some sort of martial Sharia law anyway. And if this law just makes that more clear, then you know, what's the harm, right? Well, what's the harm is I think that we're really truly going to be patriotic Americans. We're going to have the temerity to call ourselves patriotic conservative Americans. We better care a little bit about what our Constitution has to say. We better value the Bill of Rights even just a little bit more than all the other amendments and certainly more than any legislation that's going to come out of the U.S. Congress or any state legislature. So what do I mean when I talk about asking the next question? The next question here is, why would anybody want to pass this law? The First Amendment to the Constitution makes it very clear that there shall be no establishment of religion. Therefore, if some you know state govern, governor did go completely off the rails and try to enact an executive order bypassing his state legislature and putting in elements of Sharia law, he'd be violating the U.S. Bill of Rights be violating the Constitution. Likewise, if a judge just began to chuck the Constitution aside and begin to side on questions where there was a difference of opinion between U.S. law and some sort of religious law, going with the religious law instead. So again, it raises the question, is Kansas Governor Sam Brownback an idiot? Well, I believe I have friends who would answer that question with a strong affirmative yes. And I don't personally know Sam Brownback, so I got to say, Governor Brownback may very well be the idiot that some people think he is. But even if you want to draw that conclusion, I think that's just as lazy as some of the things that I threw out earlier. And you've got to work a little harder than that. If we're going to bring people together, if we're going to have a dialogue, if we're going to take steps toward compromise, if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to take a course that doesn't ultimately end in horrific, pointless violence, well, then we have to talk to each other. So quickly... Because I don't know if I'm going to get to this next week again from a slightly different angle or not. Probably not. Is this an impossible situation? I mean, I say, hey, let's have a dialogue. Let's have a conversation. Let's make a difference. Is this kind of inappropriate conversation a non-starter? No. Put yourself in the other person's shoes and try to understand where they're coming from. See, I believe that the Republicans and the other conservatives in the state of Kansas who've passed this law have passed this law in a good faith maneuver because they believe it's absolutely critically essential. Now, they can read the Constitution just as well as I can. I'm going to sidestep the temptation and the opportunity to suggest that their command of the English language is, well, not very good. And I'm going to ignore any suggestion that they haven't bothered to read the Constitution, although that's tempting as well. Again, a uh, person who makes a post on a website about Carrie Underwood, clearly not having read the Bible well enough to know what the Bible actually says, shouldn't be quoting scripture, right? But when you look back at the candidacy last year in the Republican primaries of Michelle Bachman, and you dig underneath the covers there a little bit and begin to say, well, you're a lawyer. How could you have so many fundamentally flawed ideas about the Constitution? Where did that come from? Maybe we trace it back to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and some very suspect teachings that she learned there. Or maybe it just comes from a particular political perspective where no matter what you have learned in school, no matter what answer you gave to pass the bar exam, you hold a different set of views, and you're going to hold to those views even if they're fundamentally flawed. No matter what the reasoning is, 
the point of view that I would put forth here is that, that these are people from the conservative side of the political spectrum who actually do not believe that the First Amendment to the Constitution says what most people think it does. That somehow this notion of Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of religion doesn't stop them from forcing kids against their will to pray to a Christian God in schools. And if your worldview is that the words written in the First Amendment do not stop you from imposing your majority view of religion upon everyone else in your city, state, and country, whether they like it or not, then certainly you would live in absolute abject terror that one day you might not be the majority anymore. And if you're not the majority anymore, if you lived in a community, maybe a small town in Kansas, or maybe a, a metropolitan suburb in Detroit, where there were more Muslims than Christians, now you are completely defenseless against what they might do. It's not that you're too idiotic to know what the First Amendment says. In fact, in some ways, you know, maybe Governor Brownback should be praised for the moral consistency of his perspective. If he believes that he can impose his religious will against Muslim kids, against their will in public schools, then surely he does have reason to believe that electing the wrong legislator or appointing the wrong judge could lead to, you know, the takeover of his state by some you know, rogue element of Muslim law or some atheist code that he's not even aware of. The reality is we need to have the dialogue so that we can meet on the exact ground of that First Amendment and talk about what do these words really mean? Because we don't need a law in Kansas or Oklahoma or anywhere else prohibiting Muslim takeovers of the state and the courts and the school systems being infected with an indoctrination of a non-Christian religion. If we accept that the First Amendment says what it truly does, that there shall be no indoctrination whatsoever, that the state, the judges won't be making decisions based solely on their personal interpretation of the Old Testament or their, you know, <clears throat> what God told me to do. God told me to skin you alive is not a valid judicial decision. It's not a valid judicial decision if it comes from a Christian or if it comes from a Muslim. Or even by some twisted logic, it comes from an atheist. It doesn't work. But unless we take the time to understand why Kansas would pass a law like this, how are we as a nation going to have a conversation with the state of Kansas about it? And if we don't have a conversation with the state of Kansas, if we don't at least try to reach out to the state of Oklahoma, at what point do we just let them secede from the Union? Texas, Oklahoma, other states have raised bills for consideration in their legislatures about leaving this God-forsaken land and forming their own country where Jesus can serve as Lord. Yeah, I've got friends who are right to be afraid of that, rightful to be afraid of what it means to have gay and lesbian relatives and friends who live there, right to worry that it's perhaps an, a great threat to anybody who happens to not be, quote-unquote, the right kind of Christian. Yeah, you, don't, you don't just have to worry if you're atheist or agnostic. You probably have to worry if you're a Jew. You certainly have to worry if you're Muslim or Hindu. But you also, I think, have to worry if you're not a true Christian in the eyes of, well, the kind of people that my friend Jason suggested would not find me to be a true Christian.
heavy stuff, serious stuff, and I've been on a bit of a rant all show long. I suppose I apologize for that. And probably it's a good point in time to look and say, well, what if we don't listen to Dan Carlin's idea? What if we don't get together? What if we don't strike a dialogue? What if we don't find the verb we need to put into our political process to get us from where we are and don't want to be to a place where we can all agree may not be perfect, but it's better than where we started and repeat that over and over again until we finally get things closer to right again? Because I don't think that there's anybody who would look at our current political system and say, well, that's not corrupt. In fact, I would say that anybody who looks at our current political system and says nothing about that's corrupt, well, that person has revealed himself as being part of the corruption. What's the alternative? The alternative is either to do what you know, Dan Carlin suggested, where you either stop doing a show where you just whine pointlessly every week, or you keep on doing a show where you whine pointlessly every week. And I can think of no better different drummer to cite for whining pointlessly every week than my second favorite Muppet characters, Statler and Waldorf. Uh, Statler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. If you don't remember The Muppet Show, and this is a bit of a double dip, I know that I've already cited Jim Henson as a different drummer last year. But remember when I was talking about Jim Henson, I was mentioning him not just for The Muppet Show, but also for his contributions early on to Sesame Street, and more importantly, for his adult-focused live-action TV, and for some of his creative live-action shorts, if you can call them live-action shorts. In some of the films that he made, he was using real-life people, but almost using them in a, in a cut-and-go Wallace and Gromit sort of an animated way. No, for my money, the Muppets are worth a second call-out. And my favorite Muppet by far is Animal. I grew up playing the drums. I understand the frustration of not being able to articulate yourself when you're worked up. You know, Animal, for me, is number one. But number two, and especially applicable to this topic today, are the two old men up in the balcony. Every single episode of The Muppet Show was some sort of smart aleck comment, <clears throat> some sort of heckling to make. And even in the opening credits, having the line in response to the, why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. Quoting Wikipedia, the two characters appeared in every episode of the show except for one. In The Muppet Show, the two were always trashing Fozzie Bear's poor jokes, except for one occasion where Fozzie, with the help of Bruce Forsyth, heckled them back. In contrast, these two always found themselves wildly entertaining and inevitably burst into mutual laughter at their own witticisms. They also had a penchant for breaking the fourth wall. At the end of one episode, they looked at the camera and asked, why do you watch it? In another one, Statler stated they didn't care much for puppets, not finding them believable. Statler and Waldorf are, of course, the logical extreme of what it means to sit on the sidelines and not participate and make snarky comments, and yet showing up every single week to be part of the show that they said they had no respect for and, frankly, no interest in. I love the characters because the characters are almost a cautionary tale. They call to mind what we probably shouldn't do, ending up being part of a circus of our own making in a certain way. And since this show is running longer than I intended it to, with much more rant than I had in mind, let's end with a different drummer where there's at least a sense of humor. Characters that in some ways learn to laugh at themselves and certainly found a way to, to learn to laugh at a show. Because self-deprecation is really a key idea in comedy. Most comedians say they actually get bigger laughs for the self-deprecating part of their humor than any other. But it is through 
bringing in the autobiographical by using a self-referential form of humor that you actually earn the capital that you can use if you choose to, to take humorous pot shots at others. If you're just taking humorous pot shots at others and you don't see any humor in yourself, well, then you're not really living up to your potential as a comedian. So how does that apply to this topic? How does this apply to the comment, it's time to put up or shut up? What Dan Carlin is saying is it's time to get out of the balcony. It's time to get out of the balcony, walk out on the stage, and make things better. This is something that Statler and Waldorf, as characters in The Muppet Show, could have been called upon to do, except in the realm of that comedy, in that, in the best sort of way, theater of the absurd, they were actually playing their appointed role. The question for us, is that who we want to be? Or would we rather be a key performer in the show, at least a backup singer, if not a star? There's a role to play, but it involves taking risks. Maybe not stuffing yourself into a cannon and shooting yourself across the stage like Gonzo, but taking some risks, being willing to say, I'm going to grant for the sake of argument that a pig and a frog could be in a romantic relationship with each other because I'm not going to get any of the humor if I can't get past that. And maybe just maybe on the most contentious political issues facing us today, that's what we've got to do. Maybe we've got to say, if you're politically conservative and your number one goal is to balance the budget, start with the military. If you're politically liberal and you think that the most important thing to do is protect social programs and provide a social safety net for the needy, fix them. Make them efficient. Clean up your own house. Actually, do what Jesus said. Take the log out of your own eye before you presume to deal with the speck in your brothers. Or if you're going to sit on the sidelines and make schneid hurtful comments about other people, you better be doing it for laughs, because otherwise, it's just not funny anymore. Normally, this is where I would say that if you have an opinion of your own to share on this topic, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. But actually, I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to say that if you've got a different perspective to share on this topic, Dan Carlin needs to hear it. If you're one of those people who either has agreed with me and perhaps Dan Carlin and has an energized perspective and a, and a new point of view and something that needs to be heard that hasn't been shared, bring it on. But I would also say that if I'm dead wrong here, if I'm missing something, if there's some crucial piece of information where I'm being short-sighted and the answer is different than what I'm discussing in this particular inappropriate conversation, and don't bring it to me. Bring it to Dan Carlin, www.dancarlin.com. The Common Sense Program has a forum there. I don't participate because I try to limit myself to just one forum, but he has a forum there. He also can be reached on Twitter. If you just look up Dan Carlin, you'll see that he has a, a Twitter feed for both his Hardcore History show and his Common Sense show. And he's actually put out a call to say, hey, tweet me with your solutions. What is the solution for X equals B? Because B right now is unsolved for. We don't know what that is. And if I'm wrong, then we're desperately in need of somebody who's right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Carlin, it's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me, what I thought an Apache raid, the aftermath of an Apache raid was like. I said, imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com.